0: All right, Matthew chapter 6 this morning, we'll come to our time in God's Word, Matthew chapter 6, we are pressing through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 this morning and we're continuing our look at kingdom credibility as it pertains to prayer, so I guess we're actually in part 3 of our study of prayer for God's people, the kingdom citizens um, to be credible and not hypocrites all basing off of verse 1 of chapter 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you have your reward. So our desire is to be set apart from those who are hypocritical, those who are fake on uh, the reality of what they're doing. There's an outward look, but the internal doesn't match it. We desire to have kingdom credibility, the internal driving what happens on the outside, the heart being uh, fleshed out, Uh, In the lifestyle that we live and in particular in this section We're talking about our public worship And in opportunities we have to worship God in an outward way a righteousness that is external And still that righteousness must be done with a heart with an internal reality uh, That matches the kingdom character of our Christ So we're going to press on we're going to be in verses 9 through 15 for the next several weeks It's a little deceptive, I think your note sheet says 9 to 15, and your anticipation should be brought back down to verse 9, okay? That's the 9 through 15 we're going to get through today, and that's if the Lord is kind and gracious in clarity of thought, and we actually make it through uh, verse 9. That's my desire and my goal this morning with you. I am no computer expert, Uh, I'm a computer addict. I am driven and uh, my life is compelled at some level by my computer. My wife would attest to this and desires for there to be times when the ever-present computer is shut off and turned away. One of the worst things that ever happened to me, both a good thing and a bad thing, was the invention and then the purchase of a laptop computer, which just meant there was nowhere to go where I could not take my computer with me. My computer's on most of the day. I'm near it or at it most of the day, and constantly throughout the day, different programs on my computer will pop up, the little icon will pop up down on the right side in my icon tray, and it will tell me that there's an update for some particular computer program, or that there's an update for my entire uh, operating system. And it, it becomes frustrating to have constant pop-up messages that tell you that there's updates. So you click on it, and it begins the updating process of installing new software on your computer and helping fix the glitches and so on that are present in the program that you're running. Um, Computer programs are constant in their upgrades. You can lose yourself in purchasing upgraded software for your computer and... This morning, we're looking, and I'm going to focus our attention on an upgrade to our lives. An icon just popped up in Matthew chapter 6 that said, Needed, update for your prayer life and for my prayer life. And we're going to begin the process of letting that take its course, of letting the glitches and the holes where danger can come, letting those things be fixed and moved and shaped by the update. And it's not a computer update. It is an update from God Himself through the message of Matthew and the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need occasional checks for updates. We need occasional checks of reality, of where our heart really is and where it needs to be molded and changed and conformed into the image of Christ, where we have become complacent with our, our lives as believers. For those of you who have the slightest idea of anything that I just said in illustration of computer updates, let me break that down. This morning, we're looking at two foundational realities that must guide our prayers to God. These are non-negotiables, and if we have a genuine Godward focus, these things must be present in our prayer life. For those of you who are hip to computer lingo, we're going to get two informational downloads that we must install, and we're going to upgrade this operating system, and in particular, its activity of prayer. All right, I completely now will abandon that illustration. Uh, I hate being tied to an illustration that begins a message, but I thought that would help us as we think about the process of what we're doing. We're allowing the Word of God to take a look at what's here, to find the glitches, to find where we have not been careful with our heart, to find holes where the deceiver has crept in and is contaminating our worship. And we're allowing the Word of God not only to see those things, to convict us of those things, but as we go from here, we're allowing the Word of God to take root and actually bring change in our lives. I was listening to music this week from Keith and Kristen Getty, and one of the lyrics of their songs talks about the sword that heals We have a sword. It is the weapon that we wield against uh, Satan and against the deception that he brings. It is also a sword that heals us. The word is a weapon that brings restoration. And so that's our desire this morning. Now we come to verse 9 with some amazing levels of familiarity. Most of you know this section. Many of you have repeated this in your churches. Some of you have sung this in your church. All of those things are positive and good activities. Most of you know this as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We could rename that, I think more appropriately, the Disciples Prayer. The Lord did not pray this prayer. He gave this to His disciples as a formula, as a model for them to follow in their prayer. If we want to see the Lord's Prayer, we can go to John 17, in what is known as the High Priestly Prayer, and we can see the Lord interacting with His Father. We can go to Gethsemane in the book of Mark, and we can see the Lord in prayer with His Father. Those are the Lord's prayers recorded for us. This is a model prayer taught by the Lord for us. So this is the Disciples' Prayer, or if you're totally locked into the Kingdom Citizen terminology, this is the Kingdom Citizen's Prayer. The context here we've been studying is very familiar to you. Verses 5 through 8, we've looked at hypocritical prayer and meaningless prayer as two dangers for us to avoid in our prayer life. We do not want to become man-centered when we're praying. We don't want to raise our hands and to hope that others see us praying in public. Blow some trumpets announce that we're about to start praying, let others know that we're going to be praying all for the sake of their recognition. If we do that, we are living just like those who have no relationship, no true relationship with God. And they're classified as the hypocrites. So we want to avoid being hypocritical in our prayer life. Secondly, we find in verses 5 through 8, in the latter latter section of that, we don't want to be meaningless in our prayer. Like the Gentiles, that is the pagan religions that would constantly repeat phrases over and over and over and over again for the sake of hopefully gaining the attention of the gods or the god that they were praying to. Or in particular, in the pagan sense, praying to the little god that they had carved in their wood shop and put in their living room. Right? Begging that god to respond. These are the two dangers that had crept into the religious life of the Jewish people, and they were critical for Christ to address them and to deal with them and to interact with his people, his followers, and say you must stand a distinction to what is normal in prayer around you. What's normal is to be all about others knowing that you pray. What's normal is to use repetition for the sake of hopefully gaining the attention of God. And why are those things to be avoided? Well, number one, God is concerned first with your, good, heart, for whoever the two were that said that. God is first concerned with your heart. And secondly, it is God who is the focus or the object of your attention when you are truly praying. So it it makes no sense for you to be thinking and to be motivated by other people. You are in personal Interaction and communion with God Himself, and He is watching your heart. Therefore, your activity and your motivation must match in this life of prayer. Secondly, we are not meaningless in our prayer. We are not repeating something with some hopes that that will gain the attention of our Father in heaven, because our Father in heaven is intimate in His knowledge of us, in His detail, and He is sovereign. He is all knowing. And he is all-powerful. He is not being informed by you when you come to him in prayer. You are not giving God new information. And you do not need to pursue him as if he doesn't already know the circumstances that you are in. You are coming to him with a totally different perspective. A kingdom perspective. So those are the dangers. And those set up what we find in verse 9 what we find at the very beginning of verse 9 is, pray then like this. And now Jesus is going to outline for us, as Matthew records it, a model for us. A model prayer, components of prayer, that should help guard our hearts from these two dangers. This prayer is based on the assumption of the internal reality of the kingdom citizen, which we find back in chapter 5. This prayer assumes a relationship with the one being prayed to. And interestingly enough, right on the heels of vain repetition, Jesus does not assume with this prayer that we will just use this as our repetition for praying to him. Interestingly enough, this prayer has been used mostly as something that you memorize and recite, which is the direct opposite of what prayer in the kingdom citizen's life is all about. It's not about memorized prayers. It's not about reciting something over and over again. It is about taking this model, this outline, if you will, and building your prayer life around this model. There are components that are very clearly found here in this model prayer that will help guide our thinking. They'll direct our attention to the appropriate place when we come to God in prayer. Okay, so let, let's let the Word of God examine us. Maybe you're even this morning going to be thinking of your prayer life this morning. Maybe last night, whenever the last time you spent time with the Lord in prayer, you can lay that before what we find in the model prayer and see if your focus, your attention, your priorities in prayer match up with what our Lord says should be the model for His kingdom citizens. Alright? There are three clear um, statements at the beginning of this prayer that set our priority in one place. Alright? Let's look down at verse 9. I just want, this is just introductory. I just want you to see the priority in this prayer. It's twofold, and we find it first in these three statements. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are three simple pronouns used in that first section of the prayer. And what is that pronoun that is repeated three different times? Your. That's the pronoun that is used. Your. And the attention in the priority of the model prayer is first on God. We're actually praying to God about Him. And the second priority that comes is not just God's glory at the beginning, but now we find a second priority in the second half of the verse, and we switch pronouns in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay? So you have... Of the priorities of prayer, you have God's glory set as the primary priority, and then the secondary priority that flows directly from that is a pursuit, a desire and a request for our own good, for our own development. God's glory and our good in that order. And I don't know about you, but just examining that little detail about the disciples' prayer, sets me to looking at my own prayer life and asking how much of my priority matches up with the model that Christ has given me, and how much of my priority is flipped around on that, and it really is me, and then maybe at the end we'll talk about our belief, our confidence, and our assurance in who God is when we're communing with Him. is given to us, that's just a little free tidbit to set us out on our course of studying this disciple's prayer. All right, two informational realities. I hope these are pretty clear, and we're going to just study verse 9 this morning, but we should pray like this. In contrast to what we see, now here are the two realities that should mark our prayer. Prayer, number one, begins with the reality of who God is. Okay, so reality number one is who God is. That's where prayer begins. And secondly, prayer begins with the reality of what God deserves. Right? This is the very foundational element that should be the, the, very, uh, the, the very bedrock of our prayer life. A focus on the character of God and then the resulting implications of his character. Who he is and what he deserves. And I know that we are in the most familiar territory, and I know that you are probably going to be scared by what I tell you next, but we're actually going to look at each word in verse 9, and we're going to study them, and we're going to look at the implications of these words individually, because each of these words carries in it a tremendous amount of insight for us as we look at the priority and the realities of our prayer life. Okay, so each word will be examined this morning. I told somebody this morning, I said, you know, we could do the Sermon on the Mount at a really fast clip. We could do the Disciples' Prayer at one time, and we could do an overview, and it would be helpful. I mean, it really would, and maybe we should do that. Maybe at the end we should take one Sunday and just look at the whole thing and, and review and re-grasp it. But we could also take this Disciples' Prayer, and we could break this down and really examine these highlights that the Lord gives us as the model for prayer. And you would think that because we're not doing the whole, that that would mean we'd have less information and a shorter time uh, to study in this section. But what I find is when I shorten what we're going to study together, what I plan and prepare in a shorter fashion, leaves me thinking to myself, think about it, Adam, you've only got one verse. That means you can get so much more to talk about, and so much more of what God has given us in that one verse. So I end up at the outset thinking this will be a a briefer study, and then when I get to the end, I look at my page count on my uh, computer, and I find out that the page count is identical, if not longer, than when we try to do an overview of a section. So let's jump in. Full-fledged, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Number one reality, prayer begins with the reality of who God is. Now, who is God in verse 9? Who is God in these words? Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Okay? Three clear distinctions about our God, three truths about our God and who He is set this against any other false God who might be raised up against him. Number one, God is personal. This is who he is. He's personal. We're going to look at this in just a second. Number two, he is paternal. He is our parent. He is our father. And number three, he is powerful. Our father in heaven. Three distinctions about God that set us in the beginning of our prayer with this model before us On who God is. And I don't know about you. But I struggle. If I ever give myself. And the times when I have given myself. To only praying truth back to God. About him. It's a good exercise. It's a good exercise to sit and to pray. Or to pray and write out. All that you know to be true about God. From his word. What is it? that consumes your thinking when something says someone says to you who is your god what is it that comes to your mind well here are some realities about who he is number one then under this major heading god is personal he is a personal god this comes from that first word our our that's an amazing thought folks That the God of the universe, the creator God, the sustainer God, the one who has set in motion the planets, the stars, the one who has set in motion the intricate detail of our existence, the one who sovereignly brings about His plan, is referenced in the possessive by His people. He's referenced in the possessive by sinners, if you're not amazed. By that little word. Our. We come to God and he is our God. God is both transcendent. That is, he is absolutely outside of us. He is completely other than us. And yet he is condescending. He comes and he is with us at the same time. He is beyond us and he is intimately near us as his people. We don't come in hypocrisy, hoping that others see us, nor do we come with meaningless repetition and dribble, because we come to God in a personal fashion. Not only is this personal, but we find a little discovery here. It's plural. I mean, he's praying, or he is telling us to pray in the plural. It is not just a singular, my Father who is in heaven. It is our Father who is in heaven. The kingdom citizen is expected and assumed to be praying with the mindset that he is one of many. He is a part of a family. And in particular, in the context of public prayer, when the believers are gathered together, they are to be corporate in their mindset. Just a side note, no believer in Scripture is on an island to himself. There are no isolated rogue Christians in the New Testament. There are those who follow Christ, and if they follow Christ, they are soon to be a part of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is expressed in local assemblies that are each individual, smaller representations of the whole. That's the assumption of your New Testament, and that is the assumption of this first word in the disciples' prayer. It is personal and plural, our Father. God is gracious in allowing us to come before Him who deserve no such privilege and come with the bold awareness that He is our God. He is your God. He's not someone else's. If you're a kingdom citizen, if you're a follower of Christ, He's not to be addressed in your prayers as an unapproachable force out there somewhere. This is not Star Wars. He is not the ever-present being who is existing in us. He is a personal, individual being who reigns supreme and who interacts with you at the most intimate level at the same time. Your God is a personal God if you, in fact, are a kingdom citizen. Secondly, we see the word Father, our personal God, Father, paternal God. He is paternal God is not referenced in the Old Testament as the father of his people. In fact, there's no doubt that when Jesus said here on the Sermon on the Mount that people could address and should address Yahweh God as father, that this would have been absolutely offensive to the religious leaders who were there. The hypocritical religious system allowed for no such familiarity with God. To come into the presence of Yahweh was to come with fear and trembling, with no confidence whatsoever, and with every expectation of his judgment and wrath. And yet here, the kingdom citizen is given this model of a personal and a paternal God. The kingdom citizen does not pray to a cold dictator of history, nor to a cruel taskmaster who is up in heaven with his whip waiting to snap it on their backs. Nor, contrary to many of our joking uh, thoughts, God is not the God who waits to find out what you don't want to do and then necessarily makes that what you have to do. I don't want to commit my life to missions because then God will call me to missions. As if God is in heaven, snickering as you commit your life to do whatever he has called you to do. Whatever he wants, you commit it. And he says, oh, this is going to be good. Have you heard of Zimbabwe? I've got plans for you. No, you're not dealing with a taskmaster or a cruel, cold-hearted dictator. You're dealing with a compassionate father. There's a stronger word, even in our New Testaments, that's used of God as Father. And you can turn there with me to Romans chapter 8. We see this for the first time. Romans chapter 8, and verse 15. We find this amazing statement about our relationship to this personal and paternal God. Romans chapter 8. In verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Four, verse 15, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry. Abba, Father. Extremely intimate term. As a result of your adoption into the family of God, Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6, both reference Abba, Father. We cry. We cry out. With a term that is somewhere between saying my father in our English sense and my daddy in the English sense. This is an intimate, compassionate, affectionate terminology that is used of the very creator of heaven himself in reference to the kingdom citizens. And when we come to him in prayer, we must not come like the hypocrites who have no mindset of who it is they're talking to only for the approval of men, nor must we come like pagans who think that their God is somewhere way out there who needs to be yelled to and repeated to so that eventually he hears us and cares about us And notices us. No, it's quite the opposite. Our God is a personal God. Who is intimately aware of our circumstances. And all that is going on in our lives. And not only that. He is compassionate in his affection as a father for us. Brothers and sisters, when we pray. When we begin our prayer for our meal. You are talking to your father. That should be the mindset with which you address Him. Is He any less the sovereign ruler of all of creation? Is He any less than the timeless, eternally existing One? No. But that timeless, existing, eternally existing One has condescended through Jesus Christ to relate personally and intimately and paternally with you. What a marvelous truth. That should radically change the way we pray. If you've been using your prayer book, if you've been reciting prayers, if it's God is good, God is great, uh, please help pastor not to go late, all right? Then you are missing the boat. You have a personal and paternal God who enjoys hearing from you. We could go on and on. The fatherhood of God, note this, the fatherhood of God is a special designation for God's people in this sense. There is the idea in Acts chapter 17 and verse 29, Paul's preaching, and he talks about all of creation being the, the, the descendants, the offspring of God. It is God created everyone. And so there is a sense, in the broadest sense, that we are all as created human beings sons of God, and we are all brothers. And yet this designation, as well as throughout your New Testament, to being a son of God, a child of God, an adopted one, is very particular To God's saving work in his kingdom citizens. Okay? He's personal, our. He is paternal, Father. And thirdly, he is powerful in heaven. He is a powerful God. God is designated here as being the one who is in heaven. Heaven is here representative more of his character than it is of the placement of his existence. Alright? God is indeed in heaven. He is omnipresent, so he is, there is nowhere, there's a better way to describe it for you, since our brains can't get around it, there is nowhere that we can go that God is not present. All right, There is no place where he is not present. And yet at the same time, here we have a designation of his presence being particularly in heaven. And I would confirm with many in this particular section, the idea here is more of his character, the picture of God who is in heaven. One of my favorite passages or verses in Scripture in the simplistic recognition of God's sovereignty is Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm one 115, verse 3 says, Our God, back up, not to us, O Lord, not to us, verse 1 says, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations, that is why, do, why should those who don't know you, say, where is your God? Well, here's the answer. It's silly for them to ask that because verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens. And he does whatever he pleases. He is the all-powerful one. He sits in the heavens, alone in his supreme authority and in his power. Our God is in heaven, as opposed to the false god. That was on the lawn of the pagan people. As opposed to the false idol of self. That was on the throne of the hearts of the hypocrites. Our God is in heaven. He reigns in power. This is the powerful God. Versus the powerless small g gods. Your God is personal. He is lovingly paternal. And he is powerful. Now let's not miss the boat entirely here. With all of this discussion of the affection and the love of God, we do not pray to a kind-hearted, winking grandpa who wishes that everything would just get fixed up for us. Who wishes that he could do something about our existence. We pray to the God of heaven who is creator, sustainer, and sovereign of his creation and is intimately aware And intimately a part of all that is happening in the lives of his people. And folks, when we come to him in prayer, we must come with that as the foundation. We come acknowledging him for who he is. We come not like the pagans do, we come not like the hypocrites do. We come as kingdom citizens, we come as followers of Christ, we come as adopted sons. We come to a personal, paternal, and powerful God. It's an amazing reality. May we never fall into the trap of a light-hearted, shallow, fluffy view of God, but rather may we revel in an all-powerful maker who is now our Father. So much of our common um, Christian culture falls on either side of the extreme of these perspectives. Either God is my buddy, that when I get to heaven, I'm going to throw my arm around him, uh, give him a fist pump, say, hey, what's up? Total disregard for who it is that we're even talking about. Or, on the flip side of the coin, God is so far out and far away, and so out there, and so other than us, that we completely forget that he is intimately aware and affectionately aware of our circumstances. Scripture, our Lord Jesus himself, brings us back to the center. God is compassionate. God is aware. He is all-knowing. He loves His children in a very special love. And He is the sovereign, powerful One who reigns alone in Heaven. So that is who God is here at the very outset of the disciples' prayer. And it's the foundational element of this prayer. A focus on God Himself. Now the natural outworking of that is the result that comes. And that's the second reality that must be the foundation of our prayer life. Prayer begins with the reality of who God is. And prayer begins with the reality of what God deserves. Now there's a response to acknowledging that this is who God is. There's a natural outworking that should flow from that. If in fact He is who He claims to be, if Scripture is true about God, then naturally our prayer starts with one central desire. That central desire is wrapped up in this phrase, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, I don't know about you, but I confess to you that this is one of those phrases that I basically have known my entire life and for most of my life had not the slightest clue what that actually meant. We don't use the word hallowed very often. In fact, the only other time that I've ever used the word hallowed, other than in the disciples' prayer, was in our university hymn, which talked about the hallowed halls of learning. Uh, wow, what a myth. Um, ha- hallowed halls. Let me break this down for you. Maybe you need to write in your margin. Maybe you need to circle the word hallowed and write out to the side. This is the verb form of the word holy. Right? This is the verb of holy. So... I don't know how to break that down into more helpful English for you, but this is the holiness that we desire to be ascribed to the name of God. Here's the natural outworking, folks. If we grasp that God is personal, that He is paternal, that He is our Father and that He is all-powerful, He reigns in heaven alone, then our, our central desire, our priority... Our focus is that he be recognized for who he is. That his complete separateness, which is what holiness means, his complete otherness be recognized by the world around. Hallowed be your name. Your name here is a a word that's used to describe the whole essence, the character of God. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name because we're praying according to the very character and mind of Jesus. So be careful when you say in Jesus' name, when you ask him to bless what you're about to eat to your body and to do a miraculous work through that process because what you're about to eat is anything but blessable. Be careful then with using the term in Jesus' name according to the character of of the Lord, I tease around a lot with people when we're eating out or whatever, that maybe we should just pray after and ask for forgiveness, not pray before and give thanks. Um, the Lord's not thankful that we're thankful for our massive, greasy uh, bacon cheeseburger, and that was probably the worst thing I've ever done, because now you all are here at almost noon thinking about cheeseburgers with bacon on them. all right? Here's the essence of the character of God your name father your name because of who you are because of what you represent it is my central desire in my prayer to set you up to make you known even to my own thinking to make your holiness totally on display in what i'm about to say remember this is prayer The fundamental desire of the kingdom citizen is for the total character of God to be seen as completely other, completely outside of myself. God is holy. Because of who God is, we desire to see Him receive what He deserves. What He deserves is a recognition of His complete separateness from us. And as we see that for what it is, and we acknowledge it in in light of who we are, we fall down before him and we worship him. We lay our lives down and we say, I am dead to myself. You alone should receive my allegiance, which is exactly what happens in verse 10. Which we'll study next week. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's glory is the highest aim of the prayer life of the kingdom citizen. So, two foundational realities. Number one, God's character. Who He is. Number two, what He deserves. This is the beginning of our prayer life. Right? This is the first step of the examination of our hearts as we come to God in prayer. With the assumption that we are praying. I was trying to think about this this week and how to best help you think about applying this to your life it's only because of what god has done that we could ever know this reality and yet we seem to pass by this so quickly in our prayer we may reference him as father we may reference him as father god or lord that is master and yet so quickly we flee away from the reality of his character of who he is We move fast away from our desire to see His name hallowed, to be known as holy, to be recognized for who He is. And I would just challenge you this week, beginning today, in your prayer, to examine your own prayer life in reference to your recognition of the character and the essence of God to whom you're praying. When was the last time you took a moment before you prayed to gather your thoughts about who it was that you were about to talk to. You're talking to the Creator. You're talking to the Sovereign One. And You're talking to a personal God who is your Father through adoption in Christ and who is the all-powerful sustainer of all that is we don't need to just sit and think of it. We need to bring it to our prayer and let him hear us confess that he is our Father in heaven and that our highest desire is for his name to be hallowed. This is the disciples' prayer and those are the first two realities that must make up our own prayer life. I trust those are encouraging. Commendations from our Lord Jesus. Now there's a bigger picture here as a segue to our time around the Lord's table. It is only, it is only because of the adoption we enjoy as sons, the adoption through Christ, that we have a God who is our Father and who reigns from heaven with all power. Okay, folks, it is not okay for us to think that in in light of the fact that we don't have a personal relationship with God, that this prayer somehow is some model prayer for every citizen Every person who is on the planet, rather. This prayer is specific only to those who have been brought through adoption in Christ into the very family of the Creator God of the universe. And that adoption, when you think and meditate on this prayer and the opportunity to address God as Father in heaven, that came at an immense price, at an enormous cost. Folks, it would be silly for us not to focus our attention right here back on the fact that we only get to pray our Father in Heaven, hallowed be your name, because the Lamb of God came and was slain for our sin. It would be foolish for us to think about our prayer life without meditating on the fact that blood was shed, that Jesus really did die and bear the full wrath of God that was ours. That was our eternity in hell. He bore it all on his shoulders. He took our punishment upon him. This is why we can pray this. And if you're here this morning and you are an unbeliever, you have been unchanged by the gospel. You have been unconverted. There has been no new heart given to you that would be seen in a new allegiance and a new passion to follow Christ. If that's never happened, then at this point, I call you as one who has been given this message along with the rest of the kingdom citizens who are here, turn and repent and believe, and you'll be saved. And the punishment that was bore at the cross will be your salvation. God will not look on your sin. He will look on his son as your substitute, the one who stood in for you and bore His wrath. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, and this is the reality of your life, that Christ is standing in for you and will until you are in glory, until you see Him face to face, He is standing in as your substitute, then let's take the opportunity this morning to celebrate that reality, to remember that reality. That's what we do when we take the Lord's Supper. We remember our adoption and the cost that God, our Father in Heaven, paid to rescue sinners for the glory of His name. That's what we're going to do. And I trust we're going to do that with hearts that are meditating and are full of the reality of who God is and what He deserves.